0: I'm Lucy, and I'm going to be talking about anarchists, airplanes, and amateur adventurers as I analyze the rise of espionage fiction. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. You can point to spying in fiction at least as far back as the Iliad. But the spy novel as we know it came into being relatively recently. Its evolution parallels and reflects 20th century trends in international relations, in technology, in changing ideas of masculinity, and, of course, in spying itself. As Myron Smith observed, although the practice of spying is millennia old, spy fiction has been primarily a 20th century phenomenon, and basically a British one at that. The reasons for a lack of spy fiction in other European empires on the brink of modernity remain comparatively obscure. Espionage fiction as it did take shape drew heavily on the sometimes conflicting British traditions of self-mockery and of self-casting as the good guys. At its best, I think, it combines the two. Scholars generally agree that the spy novel came into its own in the years between the two world wars but the fictional traditions it drew on can be found in late Victorian novels, highbrow and middlebrow alike. Rudyard Kipling's masterpiece, Kim, portrays international secret agents in the days before they were organized, when they might be red-bearded horse traders or veiled women or umbrella-carrying Urdu speakers. Kim, the young Irish-Indian protagonist of the novel, is taught to think of it as a great game. The idea of spying as play But vital play, necessary to defend and strengthen empire, comes up again and again in the paperback thrillers of the 20s and 30s. Early spy fiction taps easily into cultural malaise as well as cultural optimism. The Prisoner of Zenda, written at the close of the 19th century, has one of my favorite first sentences. I wonder when in the world you're going to do anything, Rudolph, said my brother's wife. Rudolph, Rassendil, is a gentleman with no social purpose and no sense of vocation. He just wants to pursue sports, but before long he has agreed to impersonate a king, partly because it seems the right thing to do, but mostly because it sounds like fun, and by the end of the novel he's saved a kingdom. The theme of inactivity and desire for adventure, sometimes in tension with pursuance of a practical career, turns up repeatedly in spy fiction. The anxieties of the English gentleman about his place in the world, moreover, are far more than just individual angst. Kipling himself, on no less an occasion than Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, wrote a poem including the lines Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Unquote. Comparing one of the world's mightiest empires to biblical cities famous for being the corrupt targets of divine wrath is pointed, to put it mildly. Spy novels could either echo such anxieties or seek to paper them over. Reading spy fiction for the 21st century reader often involves a lot of twitching over imperialism, rarely as thoughtfully handled as in Kipling. According to Leroy Pannick, who wrote one of the few book-length academic works on spy novels, it takes, quote, a determined will and a high tolerance for unrefined and unmitigated twaddle to get through the books of, for example, E. Phillips Oppenheim or William Lequeur. Both men wrote in the 1890s and have been described as writing late Victorian popular fiction to extinction, a fine example of academic shade-throwing. It may suffice to say here that in one of Le Lequeur's novels, there is a Russian plot to destroy Edinburgh by dropping bombs from a balloon. Hilariously bad, although a good example of how spy novels frequently used cutting-edge technology. Both bombs from aerial heights and hot air balloons um, were very much cutting-edge. In fact, the ability to drop bombs from a balloon is almost um, futuristic. More interesting still is that the novel in question is called The Great War in England in 1897, and was written two decades before the conflict that would come to be known as The Great War. Le created heroic spies, however badly written, and presented their work, however poorly justified, as right and heroic precisely because it was patriotic. Decades later, Graham Greene, writing his own spy novels, would bewail this fictionalization, and some scholarship has even raised the question of whether cheap novels of this sort ironically contributed to the advent of World War by raising the temperature of public feeling. There's some variation of scholarly opinion on what should count as the first proper spy novel. A strong candidate is Erskine Childer's The Riddle of the Sands, published in 1903. Childers presented it as a true story, told to the author ostensibly by his friend Carruthers, whose very character and habits had been affected by his experience. The preface praises Carruthers for having alerted the proper authorities, who were at first skeptical, as proper authorities in spy fiction so often are. Childers, in his narrative persona, also derides the, quote, pitiful inadequacy, unquote, of the British Secret Service. Now, it's true that the Secret Service had been only recently founded, and that by a man so extraordinarily eccentric that truth and fiction about him and about its founding are still being disentangled. That's a subject for another podcast, but there was some apparent justification for the claim. In any case, the fiction of official slowness, incompetence, or, in Childer's phrase, dignified incredulity on the part of official bodies, opened the field for young amateur adventurers in the espionage fiction of subsequent decades. Before exploring how these tropes were taken up and developed, however, it's worth spending a moment on an exception, Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent. The subtitle of this 1907 novel is a simple tale, and like so much else about it, the subtitle is clearly ironic. Conrad describes the task of the secret agent, Verloc, as, quote, the protection of the social mechanism, not its perfectionment or even its criticism, unquote. Conrad's plot, the explosion of a bomb at Greenwich, is suitably dramatic, striking at a locus symbolic of British power, but his treatment of his characters and his subject is dryly cynical. The first message from the villains of the piece is described, with incisive hilarity, as prophetic bosh in blunt type on filthy paper." In its complexity and its tone, The Secret Agent contrasts with many later novels. Verloc asks rhetorically, Who knows Latin? Only a few hundred imbeciles who aren't fit to take care of themselves. Ouch. Latin is often used in spy stories and elsewhere as a signifier of social status and education. Richard Hannay, hero of John Buchan's novels, is careful to specify that he knows only a little Latin, common tags, while Bulldog Drummond, in H. McNeil's novels, has a more thorough command of the language. Both Richard Hannay and Bulldog Drummond are war veterans, an identity that would become increasingly common in fiction as in reality, in the years following the First World War. In The 39 Steps, published in 1915, explanations are being sought and provided, quite explicitly, for mysterious political events. Hannay is one of the most famous and accomplished amateur adventurers of classic spy fiction. He's a trained engineer with experience in the Boer War and fluency in German, which he will use to foil his enemies' plans. In Hannes' encounters with spies and with a literary-minded innkeeper, the works of Kipling, Conrad, H. Ryder Haggard, and Arthur Conan Doyle are all referenced, both explicitly and implicitly. This intertextuality, placing a work in relation to others, is a common trope in spy fiction, though rarely so exuberantly carried out as in The 39 Steps. In this and in the later Hannay novels, Hannay fights the enemies of empire everywhere from London to the deserts of the Middle East. During and just after the First World War, German spies, like those combated by Richard Hannay, were particularly common adversaries. William Lequeux, he of the bomb-dropping balloons plot, published a 1925 novel in which a German spying plans to blow up the fourth bridge as preparation for an invasion. The fourth bridge, of course, is this wonderful symbol of modern innovation and engineering. So it symbolizes science, progress and all these great things that the villains of the piece want to, you know, explode and and uh, well, literally undermine. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got in on the game. His last bow, published in 1927, tells the story of how Sherlock Holmes spent several years undercover just before World War I, eventually, of course, foiling German spies and American collaborators. He then has a beautiful soliloquy to Watson about how terrible changes are coming in the world, although, strangely, even though Conan Doyle wrote after the war, Holmes expresses a certain optimism about the cyclical nature of history, which although it was common in 1915, was anything but in 1927. In any case, he does foil the German spies and American collaborators. Not infrequently, Americans in these stories are genial and stupid. Other times, however, they're helpfully bankrolling the operations. Sometimes, as in the case of Agatha Christie's Tommy and Tuppence, who literally call themselves the Young Adventurers, Americans are ambiguous figures who might turn out to be malevolent or helpful, but are definitely rich. This ambivalence reflects contemporary political tensions. In the prologue to the espionage classic Bulldog Drummond, Germans and Americans are described using reliable tropes. Some of the Germans are intelligent and some are stupid, but all are ruthless. The Americans, meanwhile, are unscrupulous followers and makers of money. There is much that is laughable or cringeworthy about Bulldog Drummond, but there's also much that is engaging and even poignant about the amiable, ugly hero. While his adventures are fantastic, His situation is depressingly common. Having fought in the First World War, he is unemployed, struggling both to adjust to peacetime society and to pay his bills. With typical resourcefulness, Drummond pens the following advertisement. Demobilized officer, finding peace incredibly tedious, would welcome diversion. Legitimate if possible, but crime if of a comparatively humorous description, no objection. Excitement essential would be prepared to consider permanent job if suitably impressed by applicant for his services. Reply at once. Drummond is described by the author as a sportsman and a gentleman, with the author helpfully adding that, quote, the combination of the two is an unbeatable production, unquote. Drummond himself, fortunately, is less sententious. He's likably humorous. His sword is tied up in a storage closet with his umbrella and a golf club he doesn't like. He devours a traditional English breakfast with relish, in stark contrast to the luxurious meal tensely consumed by the villains in the prologue. The villain and plot of Bulldog Drummond are described within the narrative as follows. The complete it in the criminal line. The most dangerous man in England. The it of its. Some unpleasing conspiracy is being hatched by it. The it of its. Unquote. Um, This passage is, of course, funny and intended to be so, but it also shows us that chief villains, as the 1920s proceeded, became increasingly likely to be master criminals of a vague and anarchic kind, rather than Germans. In Bulldog Drummond, we have both master criminals, its of its, and Germans, because, you know, we can, so why not? Drummond, in combating this ruthless gang, acquires a motley band of school chums, fellow boxers, clubmen, and former soldiers around him, and proceeds to play the game with a vengeance. Alone and practically unguarded, says the author, he had challenged a gang of international criminals, a gang not only utterly unscrupulous, but controlled by a mastermind. Was it not sport, in a land flowing with strikes and profiteers, sport such as his soul loved? Unquote, with emphatic rhetorical question mark. While this may seem silly, it does invoke real socioeconomic problems, for which the spy novel, even at its silliest, offered comforting solutions, or at least antidotes. Notably, even as the spy novel boomed as a genre in the 1920s, it was being lightly satirized. Hercule Poirot is often driven to wondering if his cases are genuine, and occasionally suspects try to pull the wool over his eyes by concocting stories involving sinister, slouching men, or better still, cursed diamonds. He, of course, is not deceived. In Agatha Christie's Partners in Crime, Tommy suggests that Tuppence might like to send him into Soviet Russia disguised as a Bolshevik bootlegger for the sake of having something happen. Eric Ambler's first novel involves a mild-mannered physicist being knocked on the head and taking on the personality of the hero in the spy novel he was reading, and going on to save civilization. Lord Peter Whimsey, sleuthing in Have His Carcass in 1932, plaintively demands if he's going to be reduced to pursuing Russian spies at his time of life. Elsewhere, he suggests to an ally that she should concoct a fictitious plot that sounds like E. Phillips Oppenheim with a dash of Eleanor Glynn. Oppenheim wrote melodramatic spy novels like Havoc, which was about alleged secret treaties during World War I, and The Great Impersonation, about an Englishman who switches places with a German aristocrat. This in itself is interesting, as some novels would emphasize the physical differences of Germans from Englishmen, alleged physical differences. Novelist Sydney Horler does so in The Traitor and elsewhere. Agatha Christie does so in N or M. Bulldog Drummond, observing a room full of villains, says, some were obviously foreigners, some might have been anything from murderers to Sunday school teachers. In The 39 Steps, however, as in, notably, Agatha Christie's Tommy and Tuppence novels, not once but multiple times in the narrative, Hannay decides to trust people because they seem like the right sort. These internal contradictions are never fully resolved, they just exist. But they do keep the spy novel interesting, not only to those who love a ripping good yarn, but those who, like me, like analyzing ripping good yarns. One such point of analysis is the question of who's excluded from these narratives. It's probably not a shock to anyone that women are largely left out of spy adventures, except in those written by the queen of crime herself. The same can be said of anyone who isn't white, and indeed, usually, anyone who isn't British in terms of protagonists with speaking roles. Very occasionally we get a resolute Frenchman or two, or a fanatical German, of course. Casual antisemitism is not uncommon. All this to say, the ostensible everyman hero, the adventurer who comes in to save the day, turns out to be a very specific type. Being always interested in the history of gender and sexuality, I was on the lookout, in preparing this podcast, for other modes of masculinity than those embraced by the spies themselves, who are pretty stereotypically alpha male types of a distinctively 20th century kind. They're much more aggressively so, for instance, than Joseph Conrad's Verloc, or indeed, than Sherlock Holmes. I grew excited when one of Bulldog Drummond's friends comes into his rooms arrayed in a gorgeous dressing gown but he later takes two girls to the Criterion bar for lunch, once again asserting a very typical kind of masculine authority. Women, when they do appear, tend to be super feminine, in ways that, again, correspond specifically to the early 20th century, lagging even a little bit behind the times. Drummond routinely addresses his sweetheart Phyllis as little girl, I like to view the fact that she calls him boy as a kind of sly retaliation, but that's probably just me. In the same novel, Irma, the slinky gangster's accomplice, is constantly lounging around on various surfaces reading French novels, which as a signifier of sensuality is kind of amazing. Not only is she constantly lounging around on various surfaces, but French novels in this time and place were quite likely to be soft porn. Irma's triumphant assertion of sensuality, notwithstanding, however, women rarely appear as more than victims or prizes, or occasionally helpful, good women who surface opportunely from the background and then return to it, as in The 39 Steps. Author Francis Beeding, who wrote In the 20s and 30s, has a peculiar addiction to having his heroines kidnapped, and revealingly speaks of, quote, "...the natural distrust of the gallant male for the girl who never pleads for a handicap, I'll just give you a moment to digest that right there. But in the same passage from The Seven Sleepers, written in 1925, the gallant male in question confesses that he's coming around to have tender feelings for the terribly adequate and assured girl in question. And in another novel, the kidnapped heroine saves herself, while her male rescuers are made captives instead. They, of course, all escape eventually. Everyone escapes from the villain's lair eventually. These inevitabilities of the spy novel would be gradually eroded by the increasing uncertainties of the 1930s. The early work of Eric Ambler exemplifies this transition. In early novels, he has fairly conventional heroes and heroines who are romantically attracted to danger and who choose to get involved because it's the right thing to do. Increasingly, however, Ambler's protagonists are drawn in against their wills, and by the machinations of increasingly cynical governments, as in Epitaph for a Spy. In Journey into Fear, he presciently observes that international bankers are the real criminals. The titles of his novels alone will tell you that they're not going to be cheerful, but they're absolutely worth reading. Moral ambiguity continued to gain ground in spy fiction as World War II loomed in such novels as Geoffrey Household's Rogue Male. Victoria Nelson has noted that the novel's protagonist is not a patriotic, Buchan-like stalwart. For Household's hero, only the personal is legitimately political. This particular English gentleman has no particular interest in saving the state, he only cares about the rights of the individual. Other notable spy fiction of the 30s, featuring more moral gray areas and better prose than some of the examples discussed here, are the Ashenden novels of Somerset Maugham and Graham Greene's This Gun for Hire, famously adapted as Film Noir with Alan Ladd. Like Joseph Conrad before them and John le Carré after, these authors are more interested in observing grim realities than in providing fictional solutions to all too real problems recent spy fiction shows no signs of slowing down. In stories set in the early decades of the 20th century, the era's own tropes abound, with valiant amateurs stepping in to overcome official incompetence, stiff upper-lipped Englishmen preventing World War I-era invasions, and even secret plots to overthrow regimes. Such plots now, of course, pre-doomed to failure by history. More irreverently, and to me delightfully, the fictional detective Phryne Fisher is a sort of female bulldog drummond, dashing about Australia on planes, trains, and automobiles, foiling mustache-twirling villains and anarchist plots with equal aplomb. Her entourage, though, is deliberately eclectic, featuring the joyful collaboration of working women and communists, both groups conspicuous by their absence from novels of the 1920s. Adaptations of stories from the era have at least begun to bring in some of the era's complexities that were erased in the genre's search for reassuring security. In the BBC's most recent adaptation of The 39 Steps, for instance, Richard Hannay is aided by an ardent activist for women's suffrage. She is delightful. More racial diversity and more diverse expressions of gender and sexuality have also started to appear in, for instance, the recent Tommy and Tuppence series. I, of course, am watching these developments with interest. In offering fictional solutions to popular preoccupations, spy novels of the early 20th century reflected and catered to widespread, often elitist, prejudices. So I'm intrigued by efforts to make the narratives accommodate a more accurate vision of the societies in which they were set. The early 21st century shares with the early 20th political turmoil, economic inequality, and vocal anxiety about such social problems, so it's no surprise that spy novels, at least the better examples of them, are enjoying renewed popularity. And I admit, in addition to valuing spy novels for what they reveal about the fears, hopes, and prejudices of early 20th century Britain, I have a soft spot for the narratives themselves. There are airplanes. There's code-breaking. There are secret societies and heroes who crack jokes and, at least sometimes, quote Latin. There are beguiling amateur adventurers stepping into complex situations and saving the day armed only with their idealism. And maybe with a sword that used to be collecting dust next to an umbrella. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.